The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. The date? July 8, 1741. Enfield, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards stood before a congregation with a manuscript. He read it in a dry, halting manner. The explosion that took place was the trigger, the flashpoint for what is known as the Frontier Revival. It opened up into what is known as the First Great awakening that prepared America for the Revolutionary War. Jonathan Edwards stood in front of that congregation and he began to read this manuscript. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Deuteronomy 32 Verse 35, their foot shall slide in due time. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites. They were God's visible people, lived under means of grace, and that notwithstanding all God's wonderful works that he had wrought towards that people, yet remained as expressed In verse 28, void of counsel, having no understanding in them, and that under all the cultivation of heaven brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit. The expression that I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time, seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction that these wicked Israelites were exposed to that there were always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. This implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them, being represented by their foot sliding. The same is expressed in Psalms. Surely thou didst set them in a slippery place. Thou castest them down into destruction. It implies that there were, that they were always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction, as he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall. He can't foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next, and when he does fall, he falls at once without warning which is also expressed in that psalm. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? 
Another thing implied is that they are liable to fall themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another as he stands or walks on slippery ground, needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. That the reason why they are not fallen already and don't fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. God won't hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. Then, at that very instant, they shall fall to destruction, as he that stands in such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit that he can't stand alone when he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. The observation from the words that I have now insist in this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can't be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel that has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the number of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense against the power of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combined and associate themselves, they are easily broken into pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth. So tis easy for us to cast or cut a single thread and cast anything by it that hangs. Thus easy it is for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should stand to think at whose rebuke the whole earth trembles before whom the rocks are thrown down? 
They deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? The sword of divine justice is every moment burnished over their heads, till nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They don't only justly deserve to be cast down thither, but the sentence of the law of God that eternal immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them so that they are bound over already to hell. The gospel of John, he that believeth not is condemned already so that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. That is his place from thence he is. Ye are from beneath, and thither he is bound, to the place that justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law assigns to him. They are now objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they don't go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them as angry as he is with many of those miserable creatures that he is now tormenting in hell. And do they feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath? Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth, yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, that it may be are at ease and quiet, than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. So that it is not because God is unmerciful or unmindful of their wickedness and doesn't resent it. He doesn't let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such a one as themselves, though they may imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation doesn't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is already made. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is is held over them, and the pit hath opened her mouth under them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own. At what moment God shall permit him? They belong to him. He has their soul in his possession and under his dominion. The scripture represents them as his goods. In Luke 11.21, the devils watch them. They are ever by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. If God should withdraw his hand by which they are restrained, they would in one moment 
fly upon their poor souls. The old servant is gaping for them. Hell opens its mouth wide to receive them. And if God should permit it, they would be hastily swallowed up and lost. There are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle and flame into hellfire if it were not for God's restraint. There is laid in the very nature of carnal man a foundation for the torments of hell. There are those corrupt principles in reigning power in them and in full possession of them. They are seeds of hellfire. These principles are active and powerful, exceeding violent in their nature. And if it were not for the restraining hand of God upon them, they would soon break out. They would flame out after the same manner as the same corruptions, the same enmity does in the heart of damned souls and would beget the same torments in them as they do in them the souls of the wicked are in scripture compared to the troubled sea for the present god restrains their wickedness by his mighty power as he does the raging waves of the troubled sea saying hitherto shalt thou come and no further but if god should withdraw that restraining power it would soon carry all afore it. Sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive in its nature. And if God should leave it without restraint, there would be nothing else to make the soul perfectly miserable. The corruption of the heart of man is a thing that is immoderate and boundless in its fury. While wicked men live here, it is like fire pent up by God's restraints, whereas if it were let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature, and as the heart is now sunk of sin. If sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven or a furnace of fire and brimstone. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. Tis no security to a natural man that he is now in health and that he doesn't see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident, and there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows that there is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity and that the next step won't be into another world. The unseen, unthought-of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in that covering so weak that they won't bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight can't discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle, 
or to go out of the ordinary course of his province to destroy any wicked man at any moment. All the means that are there of sinners going out of the world are in God's hands, and so absolutely subject to his power and determination that it doesn't depend at all less on the mere will of God whether sinners shall at any moment go to hell than if means were never made use of or at all concerned in the case. Natural man's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or of the care of others to preserve them doesn't secure them a moment. This divine province and universal experience does also bear testimony to there is this clear evidence that men's own wisdom is no security to them from death. That if it were otherwise, we should see some difference between the wise and politic men of the world and others with regard to their liableness to early and unexpected death. But how is it in fact? Ecclesiastes 2.16, How dieth the wise man as the fool? All wicked men's pains and contrivances they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men doesn't secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes won't fail. They hear indeed that there are but few saved and that the bigger part of men that have died heretofore have gone to hell. But each one imagines that he lays out matters better for his own escape than others have done. He doesn't intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take care that he shall be effectual and to order matters so for himself as not to fail. But the foolish children of men do mistakenly delude themselves in their own schemes, and in their confidence in their own strength and wisdom, they trust to nothing but a shadow. The bigger part of those that heretofore have lived under the same means of grace and are now dead are undoubtedly gone to hell. And it was not because they were not as wise as those who are now alive, It was not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. If it were so that we may come to speak with them and could inquire of them one by one whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell ever be subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another replied, No, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care that it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at that time, and in that manner it came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. 
Oh, my cursed foolishness, I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter and what I was saying. I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. God certainly has made no promise either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death. But what are contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yea and amen, but surely they have no interest in the promises of the covenant of grace that are not the children of the covenant and that do not believe in any promises of the covenant, have no interest in the mediator of the covenant, so that whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, tis plain and manifest that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, Still he believes in Christ, till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. So that thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great toward them as to those who are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell, and they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger, neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out, and they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and un covenanted, unobligated forbearance of an incensed God. The use may be of awakening to unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard in the case of every one of you that are out of Christ, that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but don't see the hand of God in it. But look at other things, as the good state of your bodily constitution, 
your care of your own life and the means you use of your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing if God should withdraw his hand. They would avail no more to keep you from falling than thin air to hold a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downward with great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not that so in the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creation is made subject to the bondage of your corruption. Not willingly, the sun doesn't willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth doesn't willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust. Nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air doesn't willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with and doesn't willingly subserve itself to any other purpose and groan when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their natural end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of God who has subject it in hope. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now directly hanging over your head, full of the dreadful storm, with big with thunder, And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind, and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more, rising higher and higher, till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. Tis true the judgment against your evil work has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were ten thousand times greater than it is, yea, ten thousand times greater 
than the strength of the stoutest, the stoutest and sturdiest devil in hell. It would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. Thus are all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life. However, you may have reformed your life in many things and have had religious affections and may keep it up as a form of religion in your families, in your closets, and in the house of God, and may be strict in it. You are in the hands of an angry God. It is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in like circumstances with you, see that it was so for them, for destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things that they depended on for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent in your own. You have offended him infinitely more than even a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. that you suffered to wake up again in the world after you closed your eyes to sleep. There's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There's no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful and wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop into hell. O sinner, 
consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against any of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flame of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Consider here, more particularly, several things concerning that wrath that you are in such danger of. Whose wrath is it? It is the wrath of the infinite God. If it were only the wrath of men, though it were of the most potent prince, it would be comparatively little to be regarded. The wrath of kings is very much dreaded, especially of absolute monarchs that have the possession and lives of their subjects wholly in their power to be disposed of at their mere will. The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. The subject that very much enrages an arbitrary prince is liable to suffer the most extreme torments that human art can invent or human power can inflict. But the greatest earthly potentate in their greatest majesty and strength when clothed in their greatest tears, are but feeble, despicable worms of the dust in comparison with the great and almighty Creator and King of heaven and earth. It is but little that they can do when most enraged and when they have exerted the utmost of their fury. All the kings of the earth before God are as grasshoppers. They are nothing and less than nothing, Both their love and their hatred is to be despised. The wrath of the great king of kings is as much more terrible than theirs as his majesty is greater. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him with, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. The fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to, we often read of the fury of God, as in Isaiah, according to their deeds, and accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries. For behold, the Lord will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And so in many other places, so we read of God's fierceness. In Revelation, there we read of the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God's anger. The words are exceedingly terrible. If it had only been said, 
the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which infinitely is dreadful. But tis not only said so, but the fierceness of the wrath of God, the fury of God, the fierceness of Jehovah, oh, how dreadful must that be? Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? But it is not only said so, but fierceness of wrath of Almighty God, as though there would be a very great manifestation of his almighty power in that fierceness of his wrath should inflict as through omnipotence should be as if it were enraged and exerted as men are wont to exert their strength in the fierceness of their wrath. Oh, then, what shall be the consequences? What will become of the poor worm that shall suffer it? Whose hands can be strong and whose heart endure? To what dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must the poor creature be sunk who shall be the subject of this? Consider this, you who are here present, that yet remain in an unregenerate, sinful state that God will execute the fierceness of his anger implies that he will inflict inflict wrath without any pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment so vastly disproportioned to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion upon you. He will not forbear the execution of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There shall be no moderation or mercy, nor will God then at any time stay his rough wind. He will have no regard to your welfare, nor be at all careful lest you should suffer too much in any other sense than only that you should not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld because it is so hard for you to bear. Ezekiel writes, Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ear with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. Now God stands ready to pity you this is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy, but when one that day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and delirious cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost and thrown away of God as to any regard to your welfare. God will have no other use to put you to but only to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end, for you will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction, and there will be no other use of this vessel but only to be filled full of wrath. God will be so far from having pity that Proverbs says he will laugh and mock 
How awful are those words in Isaiah, which are the words of the great God. I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. It is perhaps impossible to conceive of words that carry in them greater manifestations of these three things, contempt and hatred and fierceness of indignation. If you cry to God to pity you, he will be so far from pitying you in your doleful case or showing you the least regard or favor that instead of that he will only tread you underfoot. And though he will know that you can't bear the weight of omnipotence treading upon you, Yet he won't regard that, but he will crush you under his feet without mercy. He'll crush out your blood and make it fly, and it shall be sprinkled on his garment so as to stain all of his raiment. He will not only hate you, but he will hold you in the utmost of contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet to be trodden down in the mire of the streets. The misery you are exposed to is that which God will inflict to that end that he might show what the wrath of Jehovah is. God hath had it on his heart to show to angels and men both how excellent his love is and how terrible his wrath is. Sometimes earthly kings have a mind to show how terrible their wrath is by extreme punishment that would execute on those that provoked them. Nebuchadnezzar, that mighty and haughty monarch of the Chaldean Empire, was willing to show his wrath when enraged with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And accordingly he gave the order that the burning, fiery furnace should be heated seven times hotter, that it than it was before. Doubtless, it was raised to the utmost degree of fierceness that human art could raise. But the great God is also willing to show his wrath and magnify his majesty and mighty power to the extreme suffering of his enemies. Paul and Romans, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power knower, known, endured with such long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. And seeing this is his design, and what he has determined to show how terrible the unmixed, unrestrained wrath, the fury and fierceness of Jehovah is, he will do it to effect. There will be something accomplished and brought to pass that will be dreadful with a witness. When the great and angry God hath risen up and executed his artful vengeance on the poor sinner, and the wretch is actually suffering the infinite weight and power of his indignation, then will God call upon the whole universe to behold that awful majesty and mighty power that is seen in it. And the people shall be as the burning of lime, as thorns cut up shall be burnt in the fire, Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, and fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Thus it will be with you that are 
in an unconverted state, walking in your sin, if you continue in it, the infinite might and majesty and terribleness of the omnipotent God shall be magnified upon you in the ineffable strength of your torments. You shall be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And when you shall be in this state of suffering, the glorious inhabitants of heaven shall go forth and look at the awful spectacle that you may see what the wrath and fierceness of the Almighty is. And when they have seen it, they shall fall down and adore the great power and majesty. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. It is everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment. But you shall suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see long forever a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, when many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is? All that we can possibly say about it gives but a very feeble, faint representation of it. It is inexpressible and inconceivable, for who knows the power of God's anger. How dreadful is the state of those who are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite mercy. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may be. Oh, that you would consider whether young or old, there is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who you are or in what seats you sit or what thoughts you now have. It may be that you are all at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance, and are now flattering yourselves that you are now not the person, promising yourselves that 
you shall escape. If we knew that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation that was to be subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sigh would it be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamental and and bitter bitter cry over him but alas instead of one how many is how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell and it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out and it would be of no wonder if some person that now sits here in some seat of this meeting house in health and quiet and secure should be there before tomorrow morning. Those of you that continually walk in a natural condition that shall keep out of hell longest will be there in a very little time. Your damnation doesn't slumber. It will come swiftly and in all probability very suddenly upon many of you. You have reason to wonder what you are not. You have reason to wonder that you are not already in hell. Tis doubtless the case of some. The heretofore have, have seen and known that never deserved hell more than you and that heretofore appear as likely to have been now alive as you. Their case is past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor damned hopeless souls give for one day such opportunity as you enjoy now? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east and the west, the north and the south, many that are very likely in the same miserable condition that you are in now, in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and now has washed them from their sins in his own blood and are rejoicing in the hope and the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind on such a day to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart And how for vexation of spirit, how can you rest for one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people of Sufield, where they are flocking from day to day to Christ? Are there not many here that have lived long in the world that are not to this day born again, and so are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel? and have done nothing ever since they have lived but treasure up wrath against the the day of wrath? Oh, sirs, your case is is a special matter. It is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. Don't you see how generally persons of your years are passed over and left in the present remarkably and wonderfully the disposition of God's mercy? 
You have need to consider yourselves and wake thoroughly out of the sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and the wrath of the infinite God. And you that are young men and young women, will you neglect this precious season that you now enjoy that so many others of your age are renouncing all youthful vanities and flocking to Christ? You especially have now an extraordinary opportunity, but if you neglect it, it will soon be with you as it is with your parents. They spent away all the precious days of youth in sin and are now come to a dreadful pass in hardness of heart. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake, fly from the wrath to come. Let the wrath of Almighty God that is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your life. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. I've shared with you, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached July 8, 1741 in Ensfield, Massachusetts, by Jonathan Edwards, that started the frontier revivals, the first great awakening. It's time to leave our sin and go to God and be received by him. Almighty God, I pray for those who have listened today that they would quickly come to you, that they would break out of their slumber, that they would search after you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Go to nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. And to present you blameless Before the presence of His glory With great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with